Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? Just be perfect. That's all you must do. Before we begin to look a little more closely at what is being said in today's gospel, we need to expand a bit on what is meant by the word perfect. Sometimes we hear complaints about others in terms of, he's such a perfectionist, he drives me nuts. Everything must be just so. Doesn't he know that we live in an imperfect world and that we are merely human? We make mistakes. Give us a break. For Jesus, God incarnate, we aren't allowed such leeway. We aren't allowed the excuse of being merely human, merely mortal. We don't have the luxury of hiding behind the merely mortal tag. So if that's the case, and that's what our scripture says, we had better gain an understanding of what perfect means. Okay, the word in Greek is being translated into perfect is telos. And that means end, purpose, goal. And in this usage today, in this passage, scholars talk about telos, meaning fully developed in a moral sense, complete, grown-up, mature. Somehow I feel better knowing we're being asked to be grown-ups, but grown-ups measured by the highest of all standards. As you know, and for further context, for these past three weeks in Epiphany, we have been reading from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, It occurs early in Jesus' ministry, shortly after his baptism. He's in Galilee and probably preaching from a hillside leading down to the Sea of Galilee. Also, as you may know, I was in that region of Israel just a few weeks ago, and in my mind's eye, I see where this sermon took place. Our tour guide intentionally leads our group of happy pilgrims on a steep and rocky path down the hill toward the sea. And at one point, we stop and we listen while a member of our group actually reads a passage from the Sermon on the Mount from the edge of a cave in the side of a hill above where we're standing. How many of you have been on pilgrimage and have perhaps been on this path? I can see a few hands. So you know where this is. You'll recall that the shape of the cave serves as a megaphone, effectively amplifying his voice so that all can hear him. In this way, we can experience how Jesus could have amplified his own voice when speaking to large crowds. But for this particular sermon, he goes further up the hill to get away from the crowds and just has his disciples gathered around him. 
His teaching is purposely focused on them so that they may absorb what he is saying and then extend his teaching to others. So to be a disciple of Jesus, here is the moral code of conduct that Jesus is giving them. In fact, Jesus says at the very end of our gospel reading a couple of weeks ago, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then his sermon, of course, describes, goes on to describe what that path to righteousness is. So perhaps one of the most challenging statements we hear today is, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There may be no end to the wise and famous and articulate people who have used these words as a jumping-off point to preach about nonviolent responses to oppression. Perhaps the best known in today's world is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who preached about loving your enemies in 1957. That's 60 years ago. First, he outlined three ways to go about loving your enemies. Number one, look within yourself to realize that you're not perfect and something you might have done might have sparked their hatred. You might be responsible. Number two, Discover the element of good in your enemy because it's there somewhere. Discover it. And number three, when the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is exactly the time you must not do it. And then he said, here's how to go about loving your enemies. Understand that hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Number two, hate will distort the personality of the hater. And number three, love has within it redemptive power. And we've already heard that this morning. And then he said, oppressed people have three choices. Number one is to rise up against the oppressor with physical violence and corroding hatred. But this way is futile and creates more problems than it solves. The second action that you could take would be to acquiesce. But this amounts to cooperating with the evil. Non-cooperation is as much a moral obligation as is cooperating with the good. Finally, and of course this is what proved effective for Dr. King, organize mass nonviolent resistance based on principles of love. Through the redemptive power of love, we can make this old world a new world. Love is the only way. Two comments on what Dr. King outlined his classic nonviolent response and note on love. First, he advocates responses that do not meet an opponent with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth mentality. A nonviolent response is opposite to the initial provocation. And in this way, when Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, 
also go the second mile. By going the second mile, the act of going the first mile becomes your choice, not your obligation or not because you're being forced to do it. You do it because you choose to. No one is asking you or forcing you. You are in charge, so to speak. By going the second mile, the sting of oppression is removed. The action becomes voluntary. You have taken something meant to be oppressive, and you've turned it completely around by going that second mile. Number two, I agree with Dr. King, but I think we need to take the love idea a little further and be explicit that we're not just talking about resistance of a nonviolent kind. We need to focus on love and love of God for all the people of God and God's love that gave us Jesus Christ in all his glory from his birth to his life to his death and his resurrection. That's the love we're talking about. Jesus wants his disciples, wants us to know that the old law is being reinterpreted. We no longer meet violence with violence because God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to dwell among us and teach us about love. Jesus came to help us establish a new relationship with God. The link is love personified in Jesus. Now, the Sermon on the Mount can't just be a list of nice things we should do or kind ways in which we should act. This is not a sermon that could have been delivered by anyone except Jesus as God incarnate in the flesh because he exemplified everything about which he spoke. He was the perfect one who continues to teach us today. But the present-day reality we live in is this. We probably all have people in our lives or know people we don't really care for. Our not caring for them may be just a dislike or it may be stronger. It may rise to the level of hatred. I hope not, but it is possible. We are truly the ones damaged by holding on to the feelings of hate for another person, especially if the other person doesn't even know we exist. Closely aligned with such feelings is that of resentment. The late Nelson Mandela is quoted as having said, Resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. Better to use any time you might spend thinking evil thoughts about someone else. Spend that time in prayer for that person. Pray for his family circumstances about which you may know nothing. Pray for her health and well-being. Pray that God changes how you feel about that person. You'll be amazed how you feel after spending time praying for the welfare of someone else and asking for a change in your own heart. And here I speak from personal experience. And now my prayer for each one of us is that the goal we heard today to be perfect in the moral sense, as your Heavenly Father is perfect, seems a little more reachable. As disciples of Jesus, we really can remake this old world. Amen.